The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, beginning at verse 33, and it reads as follows. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And there were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to worship you. Thank you for another opportunity to hear from heaven. And we pray, Father, that you will speak to each and every one of us through your word and that the Spirit of God would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are in your word. To have your word in each and every one of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ is a great theological truth. Along with the resurrection, it stands at the heart and soul of the Christian faith. If you remove it, the death of Jesus, there can be no forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 3.18 is probably the best statement in the New Testament concerning the death of Christ, particularly since it is so concise and to the point. The Apostle Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This verse proclaims regarding the death of Christ that it was exemplary, it was sacrificial, it was sufficient, it was substitutionary, it was conciliatory, it was penal, and it was conquered. 
Those are some great, marvelous theological truths that capture the significance of the death of Christ. But the death of Christ is also a historical fact. It happened in time and space. The God-man was crucified and died on a cross. Mark gives us his perspective of the death of Jesus Christ. Each of the gospel writers speak of it, but today we want to look at Mark's perspective, how he views the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. In verses 33 through 36, Mark notes the events immediately before the death of Jesus. Mark wants us to know there were two significant events that happened right before Jesus died on the cross. The first event is the coming of darkness over the land in verse 33. The fact of this event is captured by Mark's words. Darkness fell. Darkness fell. And what makes this unusual is the time that darkness fell. Mark said it happened at the sixth hour. And according to time, that means it happened at 12 noon. At 12 noon, you expect the sun to be shining brightly in its greatest force. But Mark tells us at 12 noon, darkness fell upon the land. And he tells us the extent of that darkness falling. He says on all of the land. And this means more than likely all of Judea in which Jerusalem was a part of. So all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, and possibly even a greater extent, experienced darkness. And it wasn't a momentary darkness. It wasn't a blink. It lasted for three hours. Mark said that the darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. So from 12 p.m., to 3 p.m. as the Lord Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross as he's being crucified. And if you remember, he was crucified at 9 a.m. So now it's 12 p.m. Three hours later and darkness falls upon all of Jerusalem and all of Judea. And the darkness remains until 3 p.m. This is not evening time. This is daytime. And this lets us know that associated with the death of Jesus Christ are miracles from the cross. In some churches on Good Friday, they will preach the six miracles of Calvary. There are six different miracles that take place. Mark mentions two in the account that we will be looking at. But the first miracle is this darkness 
falling upon all of Jerusalem and all of Judea. That didn't just happen. That was God. God caused the darkness to fall at noontime and to last until 3 p.m. And the question is, why? Why did God do this? Darkness in Scripture oftentimes is a sign of judgment. Jesus talks about the time when he will come back to earth. He mentioned it in Mark 13, and he says right before his coming, the sun will not shine. You you read the book of Revelation, it speaks of darkness. The Old Testament talks about darkness, and it's an indication, a sign of judgment. It's a sign that God is judging. In the darkness that lasted three hours, is a picture of God's judgment of the sins of mankind that were placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, that Christ himself bore our sins. That is, he bore the sins of the whole world in his body on the tree. Christ did that. And this darkness is indicating that God is judging sin. And he's judging it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see a little bit more about this judgment when we look at the words of Jesus from the cross. The second event that Mark records as happening right before the death of Jesus is Jesus cry from the cross. And we see that in verses 34 through 36. Jesus utters a cry from the cross. And that's shocking because we have not heard from the Lord Jesus Christ for quite a while. The last time he spoke was when he was standing trial before the Roman Pilate. And Pilate was asking him questions, and Jesus refused eventually to answer. He kept his mouth shut. When the Roman soldiers mocked him, when they laughed at him, when they spat upon him, Jesus kept silent. When they led him to Golgotha, when they hung him on the cross, When they crucified him at 9 a.m., Jesus does not utter a word. He is silent. And now, Mark tells us, at the ninth hour, that is, after there has been three hours of darkness, when Jesus did not utter a word, Now at the ninth hour, Jesus speaks. He speaks from the cross. And again, some of you are familiar with Good Friday and you have attended Good Friday services. And many times at these Good Friday services, they will talk about the seven last words or the seven last sayings of Jesus Christ from the cross. 
When you read Mark's perspective of the death of Jesus, he only mentions one saying of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other six, you have to find out from Matthew, from Luke, and from John. But here, Jesus utters with a loud voice, with a voice that you don't expect from someone who's being crucified, someone who's being weakened, someone who's losing his strength. But yet with a loud voice, the Lord utters words in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And thank God that Mark told us what that means. That it means, my God, my God, why? To what end, for what purpose have you forsaken me? Our Lord speaks not to the people around the cross, but he speaks to his Father. He doubly addresses God, God, God. He doubly addresses God as his personal God. My God, my God. As he's stretched out on the cross, as he's nailed to the cross, Jesus still affirms the fact that God is his God. That God is the one that he puts his trust and his confidence in. That when he finds himself in the midst of being crucified and coming to the end of his life, the one that he turns to is none other than his personal God. My God. My God. And Jesus utters a question. Why? Why have you forsaken me? This is often called the cry of dereliction. And you can find it in Psalm 22, verse 1. It's a cry of being forsaken. The cry of being abandoned. As the Lord is hanging on the cross, Right before he dies, one of his saying is a question. And he doesn't expect God to answer him. He knows what is going on. Jesus is not in the dark about what is happening to him. He's been saying ever since Mark 8 that he's going to be killed and rise from the dead. That has been his constant teaching to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. He he wanted the cup to pass, but he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And so he understood that he was called to drink the cup of God's wrath, the, the wrath that God pours out because of the sins of the world, his judgment upon the world. And so the Lord, the God-man, 
cries out to God and expresses the fact that as he is hanging on the cross, that judgment is taking place, that he is drinking the cup of the wrath of God because of the sins of you and the sins of me. He's letting us know that a part of his death on the cross, that the Father forsakes him, abandons him, turns his back on him, so to speak. Because holy God must do that in light of sin. And so as Jesus bears in his body our sins, he understands what is happening to him. His cry is a reflection of the fact that the one who knew no sin became sin for us. His cry expresses the fact that he himself in his body bore our sins. His cry communicates that Jesus is drinking the full cup of the wrath of God that is poured out against sin. This shows us how horrific sin is. It shows us how holy God is. That holy God has to deal with sin. And our Lord cries out, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? The cry is understood differently by certain individuals in verses 35 and 36. As they, as Jesus utters a cry, they don't get the significance of it. They don't comprehend. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. And so we read in verse 35 about some, and then in verse 36 about someone. And collectively, they don't get it. They don't understand the significance of why God has forgiven, for, forsaken his son. They don't understand that abandonment of the son. They don't understand why Jesus raises that question. They think Jesus is saying something different. They hear Eloi, Eloi, and they think he's calling Elijah. Because in Hebrew, and particularly in Hebrew and in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, or Eli, Eli, sounds like Elijah. So they're saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. That could be the furthest thing from the truth. He's crying out to the one who is his God. He's not crying out to Elijah and wanting Elijah to come. That's not the case at all. So that's what the some say. Behold, he's crying out to Elijah. He's calling for Elijah to come. But the someone in verse number 36 takes action. 
He runs. He finds some cheap wine, diluted wine, sour wine, or wine mixed with vinegar that the lower class would drink. He runs. He finds some cheap wine, and he soaks a sponge in it and puts the sponge on a staff and lifts it up to Jesus and offers Jesus a drink. Probably this is a response to a saying that's not in Mark. In John chapter 19, verse 28, John records that Jesus, while on the cross, cried out, I am thirsty. We get something of the humanity again of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. He, he says, I am thirsty. And, and probably what happens is this individual, this someone, runs, takes a sponge and soaks it in the sour vinegar, puts it on a rod, a staff, and lifts it up to Jesus. And this lets us know that when people were crucified, they weren't level on the ground. That cross was lifted up. So Jesus is hanging high. And that's why they said, come down. And now this individual needs a rod, a staff, a pole to give Jesus something to drink. And it appears, at least according to John, that Jesus does drink it. But Mark's not interested in that. Mark's not concerned about that. Mark's concern, he he simply wants us to know what this individual did, what this individual said. And he said, you have to read between the words, mockingly and sarcastically, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This is just another expression of how they mock Jesus all the way to the cross, on the cross. And even at this time when he's getting ready to die, and he says, I'm thirsty, this individual comes and tries to satisfy the thirst, but then has the audacity to say, to say mockingly and and laughing. (laughs) Let's just cool it. Let's just wait and see if Elijah shows up since he's calling him. These are probably the actions of a Roman soldier. Because as they carried out their duty, they would have sometimes cheap, watered-down wine to assist them in what they were doing. But these two events are the events that happen immediately before Jesus' death. Darkness comes over all of the land, and Jesus cries out from the cross. In verse 37, we see that Mark notes the stark reality of Jesus' death. Mark doesn't use a lot of words. He doesn't give us a paragraph. He doesn't give us a book. 
He just gets right to the point. He used a minimal amount of words. And he tells us the words that come out of the mouth of Jesus. And he tells us also about the death of Jesus. In verse 37, Mark says, Jesus uttered a loud cry. Just like he had done in verse 34, he does it again. Same word, a a mega cry, a mega voice. He cries out. But what's interesting here that's different from verse 34 is that Mark doesn't tell us the words that actually come out of the mouth of Jesus. He just simply tells us that Jesus uttered a loud cry. This more than likely is not a groan, but it's probably one of the other sayings that Jesus said from the cross. It could be an expression of John. Chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus says, it is finished. My work on the cross is done. Or it could be what Luke says in Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into thy hands I commend, I commit my spirit. He puts his ultimate trust and well-being in the hands of his father. All we know from Mark is that Jesus emitted with a loud voice. He cried out with a loud voice. And after he did that, Mark simply writes, Jesus breathed his last. For something that is as significant and as marvelous and as central to the Christian faith as the death of Jesus, All that Mark says is that Jesus breathed his last breath. That is, he died. And for people who were normally crucified during that time, they normally lasted longer on the cross that they were crucified on. As I mentioned last Sunday, sometimes they could be on the cross two or three days. But Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning, time of death, 3 p.m. He died. Just that simple, that factual, that historical. The King of Kings the Lord of Lord, the eternal Son of God, on that cross died. And that's where Mark leaves it. And from there he moves on to the events that happen after the death of Jesus. In that scene in verses 38 through 41, Three significant events, even though there were far more than three, but three significant events that take place immediately after the death of Jesus. The first event is the splitting of the temple curtain in verse 38. Mark writes, the veil of the temple 
was torn. Remember that the temple was the center of religious activity for the Jews. It was their hub of their religion. And when you look at the last week of the life of the Lord, what do you see him doing? You see him going to Jerusalem, going to the temple. In several days, he's at the temple. And one of the most important, significant things that he does at the temple is he cleanses the temple, showing that the religion of the Jews was bankrupt. But the Lord goes in and overturns the tables of the money changer and casts them out and throw. He cleanses the temple. But in that temple, there were curtains. There was one curtain that separated the outer temple from the inner temple. But there is another curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. We don't know which curtain was torn. We just know that a significant curtain was torn with regards to the temple. And Mark spares no details when he talks about the tearing, the splitting of this curtain. It wasn't shredded. Mark tells us that it was torn in two. It was split. It was divided. But he gives us some more information. He says that it was torn in two from above. That is, the tear started from the top. If a man was responsible for it, it would have been from the bottom. But this tear starts from the top, letting us know that this was not the act of a man, but this is God who is responsible for tearing and splitting the curtain. And Mark goes on to say it was torn in two from the top to down below, all the way to the ground. Why did God do this? Because this is a miracle. This is the second miracle that Mark mentioned. Darkness coming over all the land, and now the tearing, the splitting of the temple. Why? Why does this happen? No doubt it's an indictment on the bogus religion of the Jewish people. Further, it communicates what Jesus said in Mark 13, that in a future time, the temple would be destroyed, where one stone won't be left upon another stone. And we know that that happened historically in A.D. 70, but more importantly, This probably signifies what the writer of Hebrews talks about. How Jesus Christ has provided a new and living way into the presence of God. That because of the death of Jesus and because of the resurrection of Jesus, you and I now have access to God. And it's not through offering animal sacrifices, but it's now through repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us into the very presence, the face 
to face relationship with the true and living God. And so God is going on record. I have split the curtain, the veil of the temple. And we who know our scriptures, particularly the book of Hebrews, understand that we now have access into the presence of God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a second event that took place immediately after Jesus' death, and that is the statement of the centurion in verse 39. A Roman centurion was over about a 100 soldiers. Uh, this man probably were, was over the soldiers who were responsible for crucifying Jesus. The Roman soldiers were the one who crucified him. The Roman soldiers were the one who nailed him to the cross. This centurion was the overseer of that, so to speak. This centurion was not in his office minding his own business, but Mark tells us that this centurion was right there when Jesus died. Mark tells us that he was standing right in front of Jesus. Here's Jesus on the cross, and this centurion is right in front of Jesus. And he's so close to Jesus that when Jesus died, it can be said of this Roman centurion that he saw the way, the manner that Jesus breathed his last breath. So he saw with his very own eyes the last breath coming out of the mouth of Jesus, out of the nostrils of Jesus. He was that close. We don't know what he saw. We just know he saw the manner in which Jesus died. And, and that grabbed a hold of him. So surprisingly and shockingly, we are told that he said, truly, this man, referring to Jesus, was the Son of God. We do not expect this at all. And in reality, this is almost another miracle. Just keep in mind that Rome, the Roman soldiers have not been a friend of Jesus Christ at all while he goes to the cross. They have mocked him. They put a robe of purple on him. They put a crown on him. They beat him over the head with that crown of thorn. They have spat upon him. They have mocked him and laughed him at him. And then amazingly, here is a Roman soldier, a centurion at that. And coming out of the words, coming out of his mouth, are the words concerning Jesus. This man, th this one who I've just seen die on the cross, this man was the Son of God. Now don't be too impressed with what the centurion said. Because he's not 
seeing Jesus fully as Son of God. He said, this was, not this is. And probably when he says Son of God in his mind, He's thinking that Jesus is some kind of super godly, godlike man. But I think Mark includes this for a different reason. Mark wants his readers to know that in light of Jesus' death on the cross, the manner in which he died on the cross, that it is just one more proof of who Jesus Christ is. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Don't, don't forget the opening verse of the Gospel of Mark. Mark writes, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus. And who is Jesus? The Christ, the Son of God. And now when we come almost to the end of the book, kind of as the second slice of bread, the first slice was in Mark 1.1. The second slice is in Mark 15.39. Here's a centurion, unknowingly professing truth that he doesn't fully understand that Jesus was the Son of God. And we know, and Mark wants us to know, that he is the Son of God, that he is the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who has always had a relationship with his Father. What a statement. But more important than the statement are the implications of what is said. Mark has taken 15 chapters and has told us about Jesus. He wanted us to know from the beginning. He wants us to know at the end that the one who died on Calvary's cross is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's God in human flesh. There is one other event that took place immediately after Jesus' death is found in verses 40 and 41. And it's the surveillance of the women. Mark is an amazing gospel. He highlights things that some of the other gospels don't highlight. But he wants us to know in verses 40 and 41 that there are three women who are spectators of the crucifixion and the death of Christ. He says that these three women were looking from a distance. They were observing. They were spectating from a distance. And then he identifies them as Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of two sons in Salome. One of the things you can say about these three women is that they were devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved him. And, and, and that is evident because Mark tells us that 
They were following Jesus and serving Jesus. They didn't just sing, didn't just shout, but they followed him. They were the epitome of Mark chapter 8, verse 34. They denied themselves, they picked up their cross and followed him. It's easy to shout. It's easy to get happy. It's easy to talk loud. But what we see with these women is devotion. And the devotion didn't manifest itself, so to speak, in dancing and praising. The devotion manifested itself in obedience to Jesus. They followed him. And not only did they follow him, they put some teeth into what they were saying. They served him. They were following him, meaning they were continually doing that, and they were serving him continually. That expresses their devotion. They took of their money. They took of their finances. Instead of lifting their hands up high, they put it in the pocketbook and ministered to Jesus. Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3 talks about that more how they financially assisted the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus didn't, quote, have a job. He didn't have an eight to five. He relied upon others being kind and gracious to him. And here were three women who might seem insignificant to us, but Mark shines the spotlight on them. Because they are devoted to Christ. And their devotion is seen is that they're looking from afar at Jesus' crucifixion and death. In the next sermon, we're going to see that they're present when Jesus is buried. And then we've already seen this in Mark 16 on past Resurrection Sunday, that early in the morning, on the first day of the week, it's these three women who get up early and come with their spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And lo and behold, when they come, they find that the stone has been rolled away. They find an angel in the tomb and they find out that Jesus has risen from the dead. Oh, the joy that must have filled their hearts at that time. But they still didn't quite fully get it. But they're devoted to Jesus. They are following him. They are serving him. And here they are at the cross. They have not left the one that they love. In fact, they followed Jesus all the way from Galilee through Samaria to Judea into Jerusalem. And some other women did the same thing. It was the practice of the Jews that they would come to Jerusalem to recognize and observe the major feasts of Passover. And so these women belong to a larger group, but they are singled out. They their names are listed. 
Because they loved Jesus. Because they were devoted and committed to him. Where were the disciples? Where were the twelve who had an intimate and close and personal relationship with Jesus? We know Judas is scary at what has happened to him, but where's Peter? John seems to have been at the cross because Jesus entrusts his mother to John. But it still seems like at this point in time, he's not there. Where's Peter? He said he would never, ever forsake the Lord. Others will, but I won't. Praise God for faithful women who are devoted to Jesus and love him and, and give evidence and proof that they are devoted to him by following him and by serving him. You don't have to be a preacher, women, to be devoted to Christ. You, you don't have to be a prophet to be devoted to Christ. You just have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus, having had your sins forgiven. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ is a rich theological truth. You don't think so. Read 1 Peter 3.18 again. But the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is a historical truth. Mark makes that clear. But there's something I don't want you to miss as we consider the death of Jesus. And that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. It's easy to think that God's not present, that God's not around, that God is missing. But I want you to know that when you look at the death of Jesus, you see God sitting on his throne and he is reigning. He's ruling. He's in control of all things. How else can you explain darkness coming upon the whole land for three hours? How else can you explain Jesus uttering the cry and saying that he is, that God is his personal God? He's my God. He's my God in whom I put my trust. How else can you explain the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom into two? That's God. God has not run away. God is not hiding. God is ruling and reigning. How else can you explain this centurion? after seeing all of these different things, that somehow, someway, his eyes are open and he's able to say, this was the Son of God. It's because God is ruling and in control. And Jesus knew that. 
And that's why when he predicted his death, he always predicted also that he would rise from the dead. You see the sovereignty of God in a few more days when Jesus Christ will rise from the dead. Yes, right now it's Friday, but thank God Sunday's coming. And when it comes, that will be a display that God again is in control, that he is orchestrating everything, that this is all a part of his magnificent plan of salvation for men and women and boys and girls. Jesus does not die in vain. He died to pay the penalty for your sin and my sins in order that we might repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus will die. Next Sunday, we'll see him being buried. But on the day that we call Resurrection Sunday, we will see that Jesus will rise from the dead. But let's not ever forget his death. It's at the heart of the Christian faith along with the resurrection. He died for you. He died for me. That we might have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our wonderful and magnificent and amazing Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for allowing us to see the historical fact of the death of Jesus, that he breathed his last breath. And he did it for us. He did it for us to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can have a personal relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that not only did he die, not only was he buried, but on the third day he arose from the dead and he ascended back to heaven. And right now he's seated at your right hand and that the time is coming that he will come again and catch us up in the air so that we can be with him. Father, help us to be devoted to our Savior, to love him, just like these three women did. May we be committed to following Jesus and committed to serving Jesus. Help us by your grace and your enablement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.